So are you ready to tackle another one another together this morning? Yeah? Great. Last week with Allendale sharing, it was just a wonderful time, wasn't it? Great time just being brought up to speed with that ministry and the good work going on there as well. But just good to be back together. If you are visiting us for the first time perhaps today, you might not be aware that we are uh, through the summer exploring together as a church family many of the one another commands that we find in God's word. There are no less than 40 one another admonitions that our Heavenly Father by the Holy Spirit has given to his church and they are specifically designed uh, to enhance and strengthen our relationships with each other. You'll find the list of all 40, and, and it's not a complete list, uh, on the back of that little note page. Uh, the ones highlighted are the ones that uh, we've already tried to dig deeper into and understand better. And as you quickly survey this list, it becomes glaringly obvious that any church family that is consistently doing these things that are on this list is going to be a church that gets to share in something very, very special. That church is going to be one that sees relationships deepen, trust grow, serving increase, forgiveness is going to flourish, harmony will spread, unity will become more tight-knit within that church family, and a love inescapable and very attractive will be lived out in the lives of the people who are doing these 40 things. In a one another church, the word me gets replaced by the word we, the word I gets traded for the word us, and one anotherism overwhelms individualism as the dominant atmosphere that the church and its people live and breathe together. The one anothers, when they're lived out, transform, really transform the relational climate of a church and put Jesus on display for the community that that church is a part of put Jesus on display in a very real and attractive way. And we want to be that, don't we, church family? We want to be that. We want to be a one-anotherism kind of a church with that kind of a culture being what we live and breathe and do every day. The one another that we are sharing together today is found in the book that your Bible is now open to, Romans chapter 15 and verse 7. It reads this way, the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul as he wrote Christians in a, in a church in the first century city of Rome. And he writes in 15.7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring glory or praise to God. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And so, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we ask you to open our eyes so that we can see, open our ears to be able to hear, and our hearts to be able to do what you're asking for from us in this passage. Amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, I truly believe that few of us realize the tremendous power that each of us possess within ourselves and I don't say that in some kind of a new agey mumbo jumbo kind of a way uh, where we're all kind of gods and we've got power, right? I'm not saying that. Each one of us do possess a tremendous power, though, 
a power with practically unlimited potential to bring good or to work ill, to draw people in or to drive them away, to unite them or to divide them, tremendous power to affect healing or to inflict harm. We, each one of us, possess this power. This power, this tremendous power, is a power, I believe, that is concealed within today's one another. To accept one another is to unleash something truly extraordinary into the lives of other people and into the life of a church. Not too long ago, I, quite by accident, on a Friday evening, happened upon a movie that was on television. It was made several years ago called The Elephant Man. Are you familiar with this film at all? Yeah, most of you have at least uh, some familiarity with it. It's, it's shot in black and white for dramatic effect, and it is the true story of a man hideously deformed by a disease that didn't even have a name in the late 1800s when he lived. This man, so grossly deformed and disfigured, was named John Merrick. In the late 19th century, Frederick Treves, uh, a London physician, spotted the picture of a garish creature on a dirty canvas banner outside of a freak show exhibit in London. And he decided to take a closer look at the elephant man. Winding through a dark alleyway, he came to a cage. A showman barked at the freak inside to stand up and uncover himself, which the man did. Treves recorded what he saw. The most striking feature about him was his enormous and misshapen head. From the brow there projected a huge bony mass, while from the back of his head there hung a bag of spongy, fungus-looking skin, the surface of which was comparable to brown cauliflower. On the top of the skull were a few long hairs. The growth on the forehead almost covered one eye. The circumference of his head was no less than that of his waist. From the upper jaw there projected another mass of bone. It protruded from the mouth like a pink stump, turning the upper lip inside out and making of the mouth a drooling opening. The nose was merely a lump of flesh, only recognizable as a nose by its position. The face was no more capable of expression than a block of gnarled wood. Treves was captivated by this afflicted man. Eventually working out a deal with the exhibition manager to bring Merrick to the hospital where he practiced and allow him to live in an unused room in the basement of the hospital. Quite sure that the man was an imbecile, Trevis was shocked to discover that this sideshow freak was in fact very intelligent and sensitive. Trevis and Merrick became good friends and Merrick began to recover his health in the security uh, and the cleanliness of this hospital. Still, Treves noticed that something seemed to have a hold on Merrick. It was deep, it was hidden, it was painful. Treves uh, considered what he could do to shake Merrick loose from this bondage, whatever it was. And so he decided to invite an elegant, wealthy, very cultured widow friend of his to visit John as the first step in introducing him to a wider circle of people who might befriend him. 
The idea was risky for everyone, especially women recoiled from Merrick in horror and disgust. But when Treves introduced Merrick to this woman, she entered his room without a hint of hesitation. She graciously wished him a good morning, smiled at him warmly, and took his hand in her hand and held it for a long time. As Merrick let go of her hand, he had to sit down. He leaned forward and he rested his huge head on his knees and he began to just sob uncontrollably. Once he composed himself, they enjoyed a relaxed conversation together. Trevez learned later the reason for his tears. Trevez writes, He told me afterwards that this was the first woman who had ever smiled at him. The first woman in the whole of his life who had shaken hands with him. From this day, the transformation of John Merrick commenced, and he began to change little by little from a haunted thing into a man. Now that scene in the movie is a very gripping, compelling, and I would say convicting moment in the film, conveying virtually without words the power that resides within this thing called acceptance. It changes lives. Now there is no one like John Merrick in my circle, no one who has had to endure gross physical deformity, pain, and rejection as a, as a sideshow oddity for a lifetime. There's nobody in my life like that. And still, I am sure that though that is true, there are some around me who feel like John Merrick, at least some of the time. And my guess is that's true for you too. Like him, they are longing for and waiting for the same unmeasured, unfiltered, authentic, real acceptance of the kind that was extended by this widow to him. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept others even though they don't look like you, they don't talk like you, they don't dress like you, they don't listen to the music you listen to or watch the movies that you watch, they don't think like you, they don't vote like you, they don't raise their kids like you, they don't believe exactly like you believe. And in fact, they on so many levels are the very opposite of you. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Brothers and sisters, residing within this admonition is the power. I believe it with all my heart, the power to transform a church. The relationships within a church 
In fact, I would go so far as to say within this admonition resides the power to transform the perception that many outside of the church have of the church. That is, that it is a narrow, judgmental, condescending, rigid, exclusive place where only certain approved people can be a part. That is the perception of many. And this one another has the power to change that perception. It changed John Merrick's life. Apparently the Holy Spirit thinks it can do the same for us. That's cool, isn't it? So let's take a closer look at this verse, the larger context that it is a part of, and see how we fit into this one another and how this one another fits into us. The word accept or accepted there in verse 7, as you can see there on your note page, translates the Greek word proslambano. It means to receive someone with extra special care and concern, to welcome someone, to receive them with extra special care and concern. And we say extra special care because the actual word for accept in the Greek language is the word lambano. But, but Paul intensifies the meaning of that word greatly by adding that little prefix, pros, at the front end of the word, making it pros lambano. In other words, he is saying, brothers and sisters in the church at Rome and at Idlewild Bible Church make a focused and concerted effort to receive, to welcome, to take into your circle with great attention and great care those who aren't just like you. Accept one another. We say, okay, but how am I to understand that? Is this kind of of an all-encompassing, all-inclusive admonition that, that means I just throw caution to the wind, I throw open my arms wide, and I just take everybody without boundaries, without borders? Is that what Paul is calling for? Is that what the Holy Spirit's asking for? Or does this verse have a context into which it fits? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, it has a context, doesn't it? Week after week, we just stress how none of these one another's uh, sit out there kind of like a Lone Ranger verse. In fact, Paul is actually here concluding a thought, and and we're looking at the very end of his thought process as we come to verse 7 of chapter 15, because he's, he's begun a thought back in chapter 14, which he has carried up all the way to this moment. Verse 7 is actually the summary sentence for everything that happens from 14 verse 1 all the way up to 15.7. So in order to better understand this one another, let's go back to chapter 14, find verse 1, and what do we read? What's the first word, depending on your translation? Accept. Wow, what a surprise. It is the word proslambano. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. Another version you might be holding in your hands reads like this. As for the one who is weak in faith, accept him, but not to quarrel over opinions. We say, oh, okay, all right. Verse 7 of chapter 15 is taking a little bit of shape for me. 
we know that, that Paul is thinking about something related to believers, to Christians who are weak in their faith. Now, apparently in the church family at Rome, as is true in any church family, there will be those who have been Christians and who are loving and following Jesus, and they've been doing so for a very long time. In this room, there are people in this room who have been Christians for a long, long time. I've known Jesus as my personal Savior since I was 12, but I've known about him for a lot longer than that. And in this room, there are those of you who have a lot more time in Jesus than even me in that regard. And then there are within this room, as there was in the church at Rome, some who have just come to saving faith in Jesus recently, not very long ago at all. Paul will call the Christians who have been believers for a while and have had the opportunity to grow and mature under sound teaching and instruction. He will call those Christians strong in their faith. Those who are brand new Christians, he will call what? Weak in their faith, right? And, and, and that's not a put down term for Paul. That's, that's simply recognizing that this is a brand, these are brand new Christians, uh, essentially like newborns. They, they have, they're infants spiritually. They haven't been taught. They don't know very much yet about what it means to, to have a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. They're, they're learning about that. So they're, they're weak in their faith. So there's the strong and there's the weak. And add to that that in this church, it's made up of both Jewish persons and non-Jewish persons or Gentiles. The Jews have grown up who have come to faith in Jesus. They grew up their whole life following a, the strict rules and regulations of the Old Testament, dietary restrictions, feast days, special holidays, worshiping on Saturday, the, the Sabbath day. That's, that's all they've ever known. Then they come to faith in Jesus. The Gentiles who have grown up their whole life in Rome have been worshiping idols of stone and wood and offering animal sacrifices to these idols in order to garner favor with the gods. And, and then after the sacrifice has been made, they go and they'll buy the leftover meat from the sacrifice in the meat market the next day and eat the meat that was offered to an idol. That's what they've done their whole life. But now they've come to faith in Jesus. So men and women from both of these ethnic groups come to personal faith. In Jesus, those old practices that were part of their former life don't mean anything anymore. In Jesus, there's this tremendous freedom that we are given to, to worship the one true God with our sins forgiven, apart from doing rituals and observing special holidays or or watching what we eat or what we don't eat. We don't have to do that in Jesus, do we? No. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul will remind us that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Yes? From all that stuff, all that works-based, rules-keeping way of relating to God, we don't have to do that. We're free. But for these brand new Christians in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles who have had little training and little teaching yet about their freedom in Jesus, their old ways of thinking, their old ways of, of doing are hard to let go of. They're in Jesus by faith, but their faith is weak. For their fellow Jewish and Gentile brothers and sisters in the church who have been around the block a few times, who are stronger and more mature, None of that old stuff matters anymore. 
They are free from all of that. But it still matters to these new believers. And so Paul, speaking to the strong ones, to the mature, says in verse 1, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on what? On disputable matters. On matters that are non-essential, non-critical to doing life in faith and the freedom of Jesus. That are matters of personal conscience or personal preference. Accept your spiritually less mature brothers and sisters. Receive them to yourself with extra special care, extra concern, proslambano. Throw your arms around them and love them. Do not let your greater understanding and freedom divide you or separate you from them because they're not where you're at. Does this make sense? Pick it up at verse 2. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. That's carryover from old tradition. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. The man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has what? Accepted him because this doesn't matter to God. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul's point is that whether weak or strong, Jesus' evaluation of us will not be over matters of tradition or personal preference. Right? Verse 5. One man considers one day more sacred than another. The Jews had that perspective before coming to faith in Jesus. They worshipped on the Sabbath day. That was it. Special, special day. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone. None of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. In other words, we're never to be focused on me, right? It's not about me. The Lord is the focus of whatever we do. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Verse 9, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. And we say, amen. Verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? Why would you not accept him or her on these peripheral issues that mean nothing in the big picture? We'll all stand before God's judgment seat, verse 10 says. Jump down to verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind. This is something you get to decide. Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way, any stumbling block that has to do with mere matters of personal preference. Do not let that get in the way of your relationships. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, verse 14, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother's distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. You are selfishly thinking about yourself and your own freedom, right? You follow the argument? You tracking with Paul? Great. 
Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Wow, what a statement. Accept him. Don't distance yourself from him. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of non-essential preferences, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Wow. For the sake of your personal preferences that don't mean anything in the big picture of promoting a united church that is passionately in love with Jesus. Don't let those things that are just on the fringe get in the way. Accept one another. Verse 21. It would be better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep it between yourself and God. Don't you like that? (laughs) Whatever your personal things are here in in these ways that are non-essential and they're, 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 they're just... They're just matters of conscience in the moment. Don't let any of that keep keep you from a relationship with someone else. Accept each other. You come to verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Is that not big picture? That is what it's about, isn't it? That's the more mature thinking. That's the more mature acting. For the sake of my weaker brother, I accept him warmly. I accept her genuinely. And if I need to adjust my freedom to accommodate his or her preferences in that moment, I will do that. I'll give up my rights in order not to bring confusion to my brother or sister. Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of what? Unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Oh man, this is it right here. Unity so that the world will know that the Father sent his Son into the world to save sinners. Right? And the world will never know that if the people in the church are bickering about personal preference issues and unwilling to fellowship with one another and accept one another because of those issues. Verse 6, So that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now we know how verse 7 fits, don't we? Isn't it interesting? It's interesting to me that by the time the Holy Spirit gets to verse 7, there's no need anymore for Paul to distinguish between the strong and the weak brother or sister or between the Jew or or the Gentile. All who love Jesus are called upon here to do what? Accept one another. It's not rocket science. It's not math in the morning. Right? It's just not. 
All who love Jesus are called upon here to accept one another. He's calling on all of us to accept each other in the fullest and deepest sense, to treat each other with love and with understanding, with deliberate thought and care for each other, being fully aware that we're going to be at different places in our faith journey. Every one of us are at a different spot on that road. My personal preferences and my convictions on non-essential matters must never, ever separate me from you. And never separate you from me either. As I think about this whole section of Romans, 14.1 to 15.7, I feel like it can really be summarized and framed up the, the way that you see it there in a question on your note page. The Holy Spirit, as I read this passage, pushes me to ask myself, am I a there you are kind of person? Or am I a here I am kind of person? Am I a there you are kind of Christian? Or am I a here I am kind of Christian? Is it about me playing out my own spiritual bent in a spirit of individualism? What I want, what I need, what I have the freedom to do, or is it about you? Is it about one anotherism? Is it about you and about, about us together reflecting an other-focused love so that Jesus is made plain? Am I a, there you are, person? My guess is we all know a few of those, right? I hope we all know a few of those because they are great people to know. You come into their field of view and you are genuinely acknowledged. You are warmly received. You are greeted with a smile and you are made to feel welcome and like you are not an unexpected intrusion in their life. There you are. They come up and they embrace you and they, they make you feel like you belong. And that's what John Merrick, I believe, encountered in Dr. Treves and that special lady that brought John to tears with just an accepting, authentic touch. There you are. Verse 7, as we noted earlier, is saying we accept one another even though we don't look alike. Maybe we don't share the same ethnic roots or come from the same economic strata. We may not dress alike or like the same kinds of music. We may not be in the same political party. We may have different parenting philosophies, have vastly different work ethics, and our background and our experience may lead us to different places in terms of what we have the freedom to eat or not eat, or drink, and not drink. Any of 10,000 other places where personal preference and conscience expresses itself, and none of that is to get in the way of our relationship with each other, except one another. And when someone does not know a saving life in Jesus, even more important is it that we accept them right where they are. Yes? Oh, man. And we accept one another, according to verse 7, how? 
just as Christ accepted us? Really? If the perfect sinless Son of God accepts us into God's divine family, despite the fact that we will still carry around with us so much sinful baggage from our old nature, how much more should I be willing to accept others in my circle and outside of my circle? Just as Christ accepted me. Do you recall the uh, attitude of the religious leaders of Jesus' day towards those who didn't live life the way they did? Do you remember, do you remember the description of the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the lawgivers, the experts in, the, in that arena? They would point their self-righteous finger at Jesus and they publicly criticized him. They do this in Luke 15 and several other places. And they would say of Jesus... You, you welcome, what? Sinners. You accept sinners and you share meals with them. Right? That was their attitude. Now, all those sinners whom Jesus welcomed and accepted probably did not come to saving faith in him. But it is absolutely for sure that every single one of them that did come to follow him in saving faith did so only after they knew first that Jesus did what? Accepted them, right? He would not let them stay what they were, but he accepted them as the first step in their spiritual transformation. Just like Jesus did with you and with me. To accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us. It's a sure mark of a Christian whose heart is beating in sync with Jesus' heart. And failure to do this is just as surely a mark of being out of step with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, how did Jesus accept us? Let's just touch on that quickly before we, we head home. How has Jesus accepted us? We could fill up a... We can fill up a book with the answer to that question. But on your note page near the bottom, as I reflect on this, there are at least four characteristics that mark the way Jesus accepted sinners. Accepts you, accepts me. First, he accepts us how? Joyously. Aren't you glad for that? There you are! Right? You know, in Luke 15, the very same chapter where these self-righteous, religious, hypocritical leaders were pointing their finger at Jesus and saying, you accept sinners and have dinner with them. In that very same chapter, Jesus tells three parables, three stories. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. You remember this? Yeah, and, and the, the theme of each one of those parables is exactly the same. When that which is lost is found... When the shepherd finds the lost sheep, when the woman finds the lost coin, when the father gets his lost son back, what happens? Celebrate. Heaven throws a party, right? And in fact, in Luke 15, there's what we read. Verses 8 and 9, rejoice with me, as Jesus tells the story. I have found what was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Jesus accepted us, how? Joyously. 
He threw a party in heaven the day you gave your life to Jesus. How are we to accept each other? There you are. Second, Jesus accepts us into salvation in spite of our sin. In other words, we don't have to somehow try to clean up our act and get better and better before Jesus says, well, okay, I guess you're good enough. I'll accept you now. When did Jesus accept us? While we were still sinners. He accepted us at our worst, didn't he? It's Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is that? That's an incredible acceptance, isn't it? The God of the universe accepted me when I was at my worst. Really? How can I not accept anyone else when God has done that for me? Third, Jesus accepts sinners without what? Without favoritism. John 3.16, how does it read? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever. Oh, man, are you not glad that that word is in that verse? <laughs> there is no restriction. There's no favoritism. There's no, there's no tier or levels to deal with. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Everlasting life. You want salvation? Come, Jesus says. I will accept you. Oh. And then the last one there. Jesus accepts sinners so that God gets what? He gets all the glory. If you look again at 15.7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to do what? In order to bring praise to God. In order to bring glory to God. God established his eternal plan of salvation in order to glorify himself, right? And so when he accepts you, he is glorifying himself. When Jesus died on the cross for you and gave his life for you and rose from the dead victorious over sin in the grave and, and, and in death, he did that to bring glory to himself. Philippians 2, 9, 10, and 11. How does it go? God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, when we accept one another the way that Jesus has accepted us with great joy, there you are! In spite of our sin and our failings and without playing favorites, accepting each other in love without judgment, without condescension, as, as Jesus did towards us, when we accept others that way, we bring glory to the Father. And it's all about that. And so we end with this thought. Is there someone even now whom the Lord is pressing upon your mind? There's some name that is coming up. One who, if you moved toward them in, in a spirit of genuine acceptance and you looked past their idiosyncrasies and their, their matters of conscience and their personal preferences and, and you just moved towards them and accepted them, is it possible that that relationship with that person would change dramatically? 
if you just did that? And is there, is there a name that God has given you right now? Or is there one who, who could have their whole world transformed, their eternity transformed, if only someone, maybe you, would take a step toward them and accept them right now the way they are, joyously, in spite of their sin, without favoritism, so that God would get the glory. They would come to faith in Jesus. Let me close by returning to the story of the elephant man. Dr. Trevez writes about John Merrick's transformation this way, following his encounter with this widow and some others who came into his life. He showed himself to be a gentle, affectionate, lovable person, free from any trace of cynicism or resentment, without a grievance, without an unkind word for anyone. I've never heard him complain. I've never heard him deplore his ruined life or resent the treatment he had received at the hands of callous keepers. And here's the sentence. His journey through life had been uphill all the way. And now, when the night was blackest and the way was most steep, he had found himself, as it were, in a friendly inn, bright with light and warm with welcome and acceptance. His gratitude to those about him was authentic in his sincerity and eloquent in the childlike simplicity with which he expressed it. Merrick, after having been taken in and accepted just as he was and building these friendships, was fond of writing letters to those who had befriended him. And he ended each of his letters with four lines from a poem by Isaac Watts. It goes like this. Tis true my form is something odd, but to blame me is to blame God. Could I create myself anew, I would not fail to try and please you. That's the power of acceptance to transform a life. And it's a power that works not just in an individual's life. It can work in the life of an entire church family. Amen? And amen. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you for the praise and glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to feast on your word this morning. We've all been challenged. Your spirit will do the convicting work. Your word never comes back empty. You tell us that. It always accomplishes what you desire. And if there is a name that is crashing in on our minds right now, do not let us push it away. Press it in harder and harder until we move. May we be a church family that can accept those who don't do it like we do it so that they might know the Jesus that we know. We love you, Lord, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, amen and amen.